This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This episode was made possible by the following sponsors. Dare to Brew Different with new and exciting hop varieties from Hopsteiner's industry-leading breeding program. Varieties like Sultana, Lotus, Bravo, Altus, and Contessa are now available in lupulin pellet form, packing more flavor and aroma per pellet. Discover more at hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. And thanks also to Brew Ninja, a brewery software solution that streamlines your day-to-day operations, including inventory, accounting, sales, and compliance, so that you can focus on making great beer. Listeners of this podcast will receive a unique offer by going to GetBrewNinja.com and using the code BrewNinja21. We're able to move within kind of a tight confine of this flavor profile without really alarming our customers or going out of brand. This week on the show, a unique approach to brewing hoppy beer. I don't travel to Portland very often, but when I do, I'm guaranteed to visit this brewery. The beers are always awesome, but their process just might surprise you. This episode originally aired in March of 2018. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. My name is Ben Edmonds, and I'm the brewmaster at Breakside Brewery in Portland, Oregon. Ben, you assign flavor descriptors like pine, orange, and tropical to your hoppy beers rather than getting hung up on specific cultivars. Describe the logic behind that. Yeah, I think that internally at Breakside a few years ago, this was probably four or five years ago, we realized in part because of uh, availability of certain hops and in terms of just kind of our own, just the change in lots and varietals that we were seeing between years and farms. Um, that it became a lot more easy for us to target flavor profiles and flavor descriptors in hoppy beers than to attach it to specific varietals of hops. Um, one example that I always like to give is, you know, we see pretty big change in quality of mosaic hops uh, over the course of different lots. You know, we get some that are very high on kind of the allium, onion, garlic spectrum, and others that are just really dank and tropical. And obviously, one of those is better suited to the beers when we're, you know, when one of those is better suited to the types of beers that we're making or Wanderlust IPA where mosaic is kind of the key hop for us. Um, And so learning to target those flavors kind of opened our eyes to this idea that we should focus more on blending hops or finding kind of hop combinations and creating true-to-brand descriptors that were less dependent on specific varietals and more kind of keyed into the flavor and aroma that we were targeting. You mentioned that this process promotes 
experimentation and encourages the ongoing evaluation of your beer. Talk about that. Yeah, I think that in general, it's so easy in a production brewery setting to get in the habit of just printing a brew log, throwing in the same hops and doing that on kind of your core recipes month after month. Um, and I think that when you're kind of forced in sensory settings to have a true to brand descriptor that is flavor based and aroma based rather than ingredient based, um, it makes you pause more often and consider whether or not you're actually hitting that target of that brand. Uh, and what that then, when you realize that you're not, when you realize there's been a raw materials change that um, has shifted the kind of flavor of the brand away from what you would consider in spec, you have to get creative and start thinking about new hot combinations in particular that can help achieve those in certain hoppy beers. And then I would also say that it allows you that to kind of explore what the extremes of that true-to-brand box are for any given particular beer. Tell us about all the different hop varieties that you've used in Breakside IPA, and how do you go about adjusting that mix of varieties to get the flavor profile that you want? Sure. I think that, so for us, for Breakside IPA, which is our biggest selling beer, um, probably makes up about 30% of all of our production. We've distilled down into the kind of the key uh, four flavor descriptors being, in terms of hop, and, uh, hop flavor and aroma, uh, there's also other descriptors that we have from malt and body, things like that. For hop flavor and aroma, we're looking for pine, tropical, orange, and kind of classic sea hop um, to a classic American hop. And so we're, with, to achieve that over the years, we've used Citro, we use Centennial, we use Columbus, we use Mosaic, we use Chinook, we use Falconer's Flight Blend, we used Ella, we use Simcoe. Um, and those have shifted uh, depending on kind of our contract numbers, on, in, depending on the quality of hops that we're getting in any given year, depending on the lots that we happen to have on hand and the characteristics of those lots. And so we have kind of created a box, you know, that goes on this kind of heavier pine, heavier tropical, heavier classic hop, heavier orange citrus, where we look at different combinations, particularly in the whirlpool and dry hop combinations, and can kind of place where we expect the beer to land based on whichever combination we're going to use at any given point in time. So citrus chinook tends to be kind of more in the heavy pine, heavy orange citrus character. Whereas if we push in a little bit more mosaic, we end up tending to push a little more, uh, a little bit more toward tropical fruit. We've used Ella before uh, with the Australian hop, which definitely pushes a much more fruity characteristic when in, used in conjunction with Citra. So we kind of feel that as long as we're working within the box on that uh, for this brand, we can use those different hop combinations to get the closest we want to the kind of center of that target. I bet a lot of people are surprised to hear you say that you've shifted, you know, th that many different varieties in and out of a flagship brand like that. Why don't you walk us through another one of your beers while you're, um, where you're targeting a different flavor profile? Yeah, so Wanderlust IPA, which is our second biggest selling beer, um, similar kind of concept here where we've identified some key uh, key descriptors: dank, grapefruit, tropical. Uh, I think we would also probably say um, orange marmalade is another one that we uh, look for, particularly as that beer ages a little bit. Um, 
And this is really where I think you can see, you know, with the combination of mosaic being kind of the most common hop used in this beer, uh, that we find that if we're using mosaic in conjunction with a little bit of summit in the dry hop, and we get a particularly heavy uh, kind of savory, uh, savory lot of mosaic, that it can really push toward this dank allium onion garlic character, and we get less fruitiness than we want. And so sometimes we use more Simcoe or less Summit to offset the intensity of the mosaic. Sometimes we'll get mosaic that's extremely fruity, extremely tropical, and far less kind of dank allium. And so in that case, we need to push some of that back in because that character is really important to the beer. So we'll push in some Summit there. Again, we find that we're able to move within kind of a tight confine of this flavor profile without really. alarming our customers or uh, going out of brand. And, you know, we do a lot of sensory evaluation to make sure that these perceptions are keeping the beer on brand. So you must really dread the question when people ask you which hop varieties are in your beers, huh? Yeah, well, the answer is mo- many of them. All, all of them, them. yeah. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, I will say, it's, it's, I, I don't want it to sound like it's kind of uh, willy-nilly, you know, that it's a free-for-all. I think that it's important that you focus on particular four or five kind of core varietals that you might be rotating through in any given brand. Though for us, we tend to almost always go down to two or three that we're using in a particular batch based on the lots that we have, based on our sensory analysis of those lots and where the beer has been trending as of late. Um, Yeah, it's not, I think it's easy to hear what I'm saying in this and interpret that as, it doesn't matter what hops you're using. You can use any of them at any time. And that's really not the point at all. It's the, it's, it's a much tighter window than that. All right. Fair enough. Talk about your sensory program. How do you evaluate your beers against those targeted flavor profiles? In terms of actually implementing this, the first step for us was to develop true to brand descriptions for our beers, both when they were brewery fresh and kind of the, aged versions that we considered acceptable on the market in terms of, you know, where we saw uh, how they were tasting at 15 or 30 days and what we expected of those beers at that point in time. After that, once you've kind of established that off of some baseline tastings, you have to validate people. You have to know the people that you're bringing into your panel can identify the difference between fresh breaks at IPA, 15-day breaks at IPA, watered-down breaks at IPA, lunch break, which is our session IPA, blended with breaks at IPA, and be able to actually um, getting, getting those tasters validated before they are either handling a beer, on, in the produc- in, in, handling a beer in production and signing off on it. Um, for us, we, once we had that done, we started doing uh, taste panels where we taste all packaged beer at 15, 30, 45, and 60 days, uh, keg beer at 30 days, and um, Anytime we're doing one of these changes that I'm talking about, we're considering kind of a shift in the composition of the hops. We'll always schedule a couple batches side by side so we can do a so we can do a triangle test. And in my opinion, on those triangle tests, we're looking for a very specific result, uh, and we don't always get it. But the result that we're looking for is that there's no perceptible difference, uh, no statistically significant perceptible difference between the old kind of combination of hops and the new combination of hops, and that the new combination of hops is preferable to the few people who can actually tell a difference. So there's kind of two stages to that analysis. Okay. Walk us through a true to brand description for, for one of your beers. Yeah. So for us, 
there's some color and clarity coming from appearance descriptors. So for breaks at IPA, we might say it's copper to orange with a golden hue. Uh, clarity is, uh, is that it should be bright, though low chill haze is acceptable. From there, we'll go to aroma and flavor descriptors. And, and there we have a rank for them. Uh, primary, secondary, tertiary. And we also, and I think this is a really important one that a lot of breweries don't establish, is characteristics that are absent uh, in, that, in that brand. So for us, uh, the uh, primary aroma characteristics and flavor characteristics are ones that we consider to be critical criteria, that if those aren't present, uh, then the beer is really not within brand. Secondary and tertiary characteristics are ones that we expect, but that can have a little bit more flexibility based on what we're trying to do with any given, um, with any given composition, uh, sorry, constellation of hops. So, for example, in Breaks at IPA, we'll say that sometimes we'll get a guava-like characteristic, and that's a secondary characteristic, uh, that hot, also some noble hop spice is acceptable as a tertiary characteristic. But those aren't those critical criteria of tropical, fruity, pine, and orange for us. Um, we'll also, again, like I said, notice, note absent characteristics. So in Breaks at IPA, oxidized malt, vegetal characteristics are undesirable. And then we'll also comment on bitterness and mouthfeel. Uh, in terms of where we expect that. So it kind of is not that distinct from what you might see in a style guideline, but there are some key differences where you're kind of creating a rank order of your own brand's flavor and aroma characteristics. I sat in on selection with you and your team a few years ago in Wapato, and it's always interesting to see how different brewers approach hop selection. Why don't you talk about your process? How do you prepare for selection and describe what happens in the room to those, of, to, to those who haven't had the opportunity to participate in selection? Yeah, so a quick rundown of how hop selection often works is that if you have a number of lots contract or a number of a certain poundage contracted with any given broker, supplier, or farmer, you might get the opportunity to smell several different lots. Um, so you get these brewer's cuts, which are uh, about a pound in size of holy pops that have been baled and then um, cut and presented. So, you know, you might get four or five brewer's cuts of any single varietal, uh, depending on when you're up in Yakima for selection or in, in the Willamette Valley for selection. And for us, we try and be very systematic about how we go about doing this. We have, we've established a system, a process beforehand that works for our team. Um, one is that we sort of just have, and part of that's just a conversation, a very uh, structured but or but informal conversation around each varietal. So we'll talk about where a varietal is being used in our portfolio currently, what uh, the key flavor and aroma descriptors are for that varietal, um, and then we'll also talk about whether or not we're happy with it. You know, that's a big piece of it. Have we been happy with the centennial we're getting, with the El Dorado that we're getting, and do we like last year's crop? Are we looking for something in the next upcoming uh, harvest that's going to be different? or um, a big shift from what we've been getting in the past. Kind of establishing ground rules for what we're looking for with every single varietal when we sit down to rub it. From there, the folks at the table smell everything, take their notes, um, and we kind of go for a thumbs up, thumbs down on quality first. Is there anything on the table that's just we absolutely think is uh, not worth considering? That the quality of the hops has some offer, whether it's cheesiness or rubberiness or really intense onion gar garlic character or sulfur note for example from there we'll try and kind of we'll start discussing um which of the lots that we've smelled are most pre are most similar to the ones that we 
have in our current portfolio. And then we'll also start talking about attaching descriptors to those different lots. Um, and from there, we start kind of hashing out and making selections. So I think it's this process of identifying, you know, what you want out of each varietal, typicity for your own brands or typicity within your portfolio in the next year's lots, and then also um, attaching specific descriptors. We've also, uh, since I first gave this presentation to me, uh, for Humulus University, have started adding a intensity rank to our hops. We find that that's one thing in hop selection that has really assisted us as well. Uh, we find sometimes that we get really beautiful but delicate hop lots put in front of us. And so one of the things we talk a lot about is to what degree we need intensity in any given varietal. Citra is a really interesting example of this for us because we've had some really lovely citra lots, but they just don't punch quite as hard as we'd like when you use them in finished beer. And so we found that um, we've, we've shifted a little bit in our process toward emphasizing intensity and aroma, not just uh, typicity or characteristics as well. Coming up. You know, until you have all those things fully dialed in, um, you're going to kind of chase a ghost a little bit, in my opinion, in terms of getting making great hoppy beers. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. There's really only one thing that keeps this podcast going, and that's when listeners like you take the time to thank our sponsors. The next time you talk to a rep from one of these companies, be sure to thank them for their generous support. Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, Try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation works with your existing fermentation tanks to track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity in real time from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Get started for 30 days risk-free. Visit precisionfermentation.com mbaa. This episode is also sponsored by More Beer, Visit morebeerpro.com to browse ingredients, equipment, and more. Master Brewers Podcast is brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact us at 1-800-374-2739. There's one more sponsor I should mention, and that's Muntins, offering a wide range of malted ingredients sourced within a 50-mile radius of their maltings. Listen to Nigel Davis discuss sustainability at Muntins on episode 206. And here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. 
Thanks to Rob Schwartz, who wrote in to let us know that District Rocky Mountain is offering a scholarship to the Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course. The deadline to apply is September 1st. Check the show notes for a direct link. District Midwest meets at the Yellow Springs Brewery Barrel Room September 18th. District St. Louis hits the links September 23rd. District Georgia meets at Southern Brewing in Athens September 24th. The District Ontario 2021 Iron Brewer Competition is September 24th. District Carolinas meets in Greenville October 1st and 2nd. District Northwest will hold its annual meeting in Hood River October 22nd and 23rd. There's one big meeting that's on my calendar. I hope it's on yours. The 2021 Master Brewers Conference will be October 28th through the 30th in Cleveland. Registration is open now. And don't forget the world-famous Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course begins October 31st. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. I know you guys track hop lots in the brewery. Talk about your strategy and what that does for you. Yeah, you know, the challenge in a production brewery, of course, when you move into new hop lots is that it might be two or three weeks uh, minimum once you've started using a new lot before you really can see the results of that. And so it takes a little while to turn the boat. Um, we've had a discussion internally at Breakside recently about what do we consider an acceptable time frame from the time that we start using a new lot until we kind of are evaluating it and making some decisions about do we want to make any changes to the current hop schedule for one of our core hobby beers. And uh, the answer is kind of we've, we've, we've just settled on about a three to four week kind of turnaround on that. Um, we don't think that there's an easy way for us to do it any sooner. And we found that you know, any ways of sort of trialing lots, whether it be doing mini dry hops or French presses with finished beer, are really not necessarily 100% representative of what we're going to get out of the lot. So we depend a lot on uh, the notes that we take at hop selection from and about the hops we've gotten from each supplier. Uh, and then we kind of just are very quick anytime we're making a, uh, we're shifting lots to track that batch through fermentation. And as soon as we can get a finished version of it in front of our sensory panel, we do uh, and try and do that, you know, not just at the 30 day point, but at the kind of one week point so that we can start to make any changes that we think might be necessary. It doesn't sound like you do a lot of single hop, hop beers. Talk about blended versus discrete hop additions. Yeah, we don't do a ton of single hop beers. I mean, unless you consider kind of Pilsner might be a single single hop beer for us. That might be the only one or a couple of others that just have a 60-minute bittering edition. But in terms of our, yeah, American West Coast hoppy beers, or I guess East Coast hoppy beers these days, uh, they are usually a combination of uh, two to four hops in any given beer. Um, one thing that we have typically done at Breakside, though not exclusively, is that we tend to favor discrete hop edition. So our 10-minute hop edition, our Whirlpool hop edition, are one single varietal, as opposed to using three or four hops all in concert at each of those editions. Um, our dry hops are usually two to three varietals in any given beer. 
but on hot side uh beer on hot side editions we're usually doing those discrete ones and for us what we like about that is that it gives us a really good sense of what any single hot does in any given moment or in any single usage uh, so we know what we get out of Simcoe at a 10-minute edition versus a Whirlpool edition versus a dry hop edition. And we have a really good sense of where we like to use different varietals. So we really love Citra as a 5- or 10-minute edition and tend to stay away from it uh, as, an, as a giant Whirlpool edition in a lot of beers. We think we get a better citrusy tropical characteristic out of it uh, with that slightly earlier edition. So things like that that have kind of been good lessons learned for how to deploy those hops over time. That said, I think a lot of people go the opposite route and blend several varietals together at the, you know, at any number of editions. Um, and I think that buffers a little bit against some of the swings and lots and, and lot changes that, that you might see. There are a lot of new breweries out there. So how about some words of wisdom in regards to dialing in key process metrics before devoting any energy towards chasing this sort of, you know, perfect aroma and flavor targets? Yeah, I mean, there's kind of in my mind that you you have to have your you have to have the basics on lock before you can really consistently make great hoppy beers. I mean, I think that locking in the OG, TG, ABV, and IBUs on a on a brand, you know, those are just as important for your true to brand descriptors as the hot flavor descriptors are. Um, and it, I, I think that you understanding how to balance the beer, how to get the alcohol and the hops to work together, how to maintain the bitterness in a way that's present but not overwhelming or underwhelming are things you have to not only have on lock in theory, on paper, but also in your brew house processes. And, you know, as you get further down, I think looking at things like beer pH, CO2 levels, DO levels, um, non-hop related flavor components like malt characteristics, as well as then, of course, your fermentation health, you know, until you have all those things fully dialed in, um, you're going to kind of chase a ghost a little bit, in my opinion, in terms of getting, making great hoppy beers. Fully agree. You've said that you care a lot more about the flavor profile of your beer at day 30 versus day one or 10. Why is that? And how do you go about optimizing for a 30 day beer flavor profile? Yeah, I think that for us, we've found that you know, the reason for that is, is simple. It's that's when most of our customers are having beer. We want to make sure the beer that's landing in front of someone is at its optimal point. I think there's a myth uh, around freshness or a certain kind of um, fetishization around freshness, which is that beer that's more than a week old can't, you know, is already going downhill if it's, a, if it's an American hoppy beer. And I mean, that's been a great um, mechanism for selling beer that's more rapidly, but I don't know that it's actually true. And for us, you know, we're a packaging brewery. About uh, 85% of the beer that we sell is consumed not at our pubs. So we want to make sure that it's that 30-day beer that the average consumer is getting, whether it be in draft or in package uh, from the supermarket store, is, is landing in front of them at the right time. Um, so for us, you know, we talk a little bit internally about the way that we see our hop progressions develop with uh with oxidation as as the beer spends time in package how does it open up how does hop sulfur drop how does certain varietals kind of fade and which varietals hang on i think one thing that a lot of brewers underestimate for example it's kind of a concrete um suggestion is 
that a lot of the older varietals of American hops, the Centennial, Chinook, uh, I guess we could consider Amarillo and Simcoe older varietals at this point, have a really amazing staying power that certain, uh, some of the newer hops do not. Uh, and I think that Wanderlust is a great example in this for us, where I think that as that mosaic, that really fresh, pungent mosaic character starts to uh, dissipate a little bit, typically around day 30 or 35, we see that Simcoe character, that Amarillo character, really come forward in a pleasant way that kind of gives the beer a second identity in life in the package. So I think that that's another argument for you know using multiple hops in your beers and also for our pushing in some of your classic uh characteristics those will have a little bit more um they have they have some staying power we had aaron justice from ballast point on the show to talk about sulfide uh, sulfate to chloride ratios back on episode 66 how do you approach water chemistry at breakside yeah, we, we moderately burtonize the water for all of our hoppy beers. Um, I, we don't go crazy. We're not using 10 to 1 sulfate to chloride. Uh, our water source in Milwaukee, uh, Oregon, which is where our production brewery is, is uh, moderately hard, uh, moderately high carbonate naturally. So we don't add a ton of carbonate, but we do add um, usually in the kind of 3 to 1 to 5 to 1 range uh, ratio of sulfate to chloride. And I tend to like you know, for us, in terms of total mineral content, that usually means uh, around 30 pp, uh, ppm of, uh, of, of chloride. You, had, you mentioned an interesting watch out during the presentation in terms of uh, final gravity when you look at those ratios, too. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, the drier a beer gets, the more both your bitterness but also your, your sulfate is going to, um, to pop. And I think that, you know, there was a, there are a lot of lessons that I think a lot of people ingrained the lessons of, uh, you know, 10 years ago, which was to get your, get your hoppy beers as dry as you can to allow the, that there not to be much for the, to hide the hops. And I think in reality, you actually want some uh, residual sugars in most of your hoppy beers. I mean, Breaks of IPA finishes uh, right between 2.9 and 3.2 degrees Play-Doh. That's kind of our sweet spot. Um, uh, in spec range, Wanderlust is a little bit drier between two six and two eight, but we uh, don't have really any hoppy beers that get much drier than about two six two seven. Uh, at least we try not to ever have that happen. That's kind of a spot where you're again, depending on the salt profile, depending on the bitterness, depending on the malt profile, you really get that perfect balance where you're able to get the most out of your salts to improve drinkability, but also not cause your back palate to get too dry and tacky, to keep the bitterness in check in a way that balances malt sweetness without overwhelming hop, uh, hop, hop flavor. So um, I think there's just kind of a magical spot in there in that high two to low three range where you can achieve a lot of things. And even on our kind of more New Englandy type beers, uh, East Coast type uh, IPAs that we've been brewing, I think that those beers do really nicely in the low, you know, low to mid three range with the finishing gravity. We certainly don't go much drier than that. Um, and I also think that you keep, you know, some of those beers get so sweet and finish so sweet and so chewy that you lose some of the refreshment, the, the, the drinkability and the moorishness out of them. So we try and keep the beers both water profile wise and TG wise, just a little bit softer and a little higher finishing than we would on a West coast beer, but really not too far off. Do you want to talk about your dry hopping strategy? 
Yeah, we're classicists. We, we go up top and we, we drop the hops in through manways up top, um, you know, while blowing a whole bunch of CO2 out through the spray ball uh, arm to keep oxygen from coming in. Um, we've used cannons, we've used hot pumps, we've recirculated. We've tried all those uh, and we keep coming back to going up top and dumping the hops in uh, at the end of fermentation while beer is still in the mid 60s. Um, and, you know, we rouse hops uh, in our smaller tanks and the larger tanks. We just don't think that it's especially effective uh, in terms of getting the hops that much higher, though. We have done a number of sensory trials internally where we haven't really been able to identify the difference. We do think that rousing hops uh, after dry hop with CO2 from the bottom of the tank helps with hop aroma, but doing it one versus three times, we're not sure that there's any real difference. Um, and then, uh, you know, I think one thing that in a recent MBA podcast that's come up that I think is a totally new area of, of brewing that is uh, certainly a challenge for anyone who's making heavily dry hop beers these days is uh, diacetyl and re-fermentation after dry hopping. I don't think this was really an issue a few years ago, but it certainly is informing the way that we're dry hopping now in a way that it wasn't uh, even three years ago. And I think that that is a fascinating area that a lot of people are dealing with right now and trying to figure out is how, you know, how do you put as much dry hopping as you want without having to deal with huge spikes in BDK later on that you have to either, you have to reduce if you don't want it in your finished beer, which presumably you don't. Yeah, you know? I, I, yeah, I totally agree. And it's, it's um, just like she mentioned, it's one of those things that I and uh, probably a lot of other brewers d- did notice anecdotally that, hey, you know, how, co- how come you're so much more likely to, to get a diacetyl bomb that's an IPA versus a different, you know, kind of beer? Yeah. John, John Bullard of Bosque Brewing has a really fascinating theory, which is to me the best theory I've seen yet, which is that, uh, that as craft brewers have asked for more oil in their hops and have kind of pushed hop farmers and hop growers to lower their kiln temperatures, that the glucosidase that are naturally present in uh, hops are more likely to survive. (laughs) That's interesting. (laughs) There's actually like a, I think, I don't remember if it's an MBAA paper, an ASBC paper from like 1934 about the amyloglucosidase properties of hops. Really? Yeah. That's Um, cool. And so, I mean, I think that it's that. And not to mention also, I think just talking with farmers about it, like that the late harvest hops are so in demand that kilns are overstuffed, which means the kiln temperatures are lower overall there too. So even, I, I think it's really interesting, you know, a year and a half ago, when we would see these little spikes, I'd be like, it's crazy. Like, why are we only seeing this in this one brand? And this other IPA, and I dismissed it at the time as totally ludicrous that somehow one specific hop bridle could be the culprit. And now, a year and a half later, so I'm like, no, I actually am starting to believe that there could be varying levels of enzymes in different hops that are causing, you know, that make certain bridles more prone to diacetyl production uh, than others. That was Ben Edmonds here on the Master Brewers Podcast. If you'd like to hear more from Ben, check out his webinar on the same topic. You can find it by typing Ben into the search bar at mbaa.com. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers Podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. 
There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, Brew Ninja, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Master Brewers offers a wide range of resources for breweries of all sizes and stages. Stay current on the latest scientific advancements, technical information, and industry trends by joining Master Brewers. Join today and use offer code BEER2021 to save 20% on dues now through December 31st, 2021. Master Brewers, United We Brew. Let's talk about-